Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Popcorn Tennis Podcast. I have Jack Edward once again from On the Line Podcast with me, and Nick Carter, our co-host, to talk about Wimbledon uh, and I guess the grass season in general, which was pretty short one as always, and you know also try to paint a picture of uh, the U.S. Open series and how we expect the standout players from Wimbledon. Uh, and the grass wing in general to fare there, and if we do expect um, to have any dark horses or any busts and whatnot. So, how are you doing, Jack? Good, thanks, Rayiri. Thank you very much for having me on the show. I'm course, looking pleasure. forward to to talking this one because it was obviously it was a landmark moment, wasn't it? So, I'm looking forward to talking about it a lot. It was so. Uh, of course, disclaimer or you know just uh just uh, to get this going. Carlos Alcaraz uh, uh, became the first player outside the big four, namely Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic, and Andy Murray, in 20 years to win Wimbledon. Um, and it, it's monumental because the last time someone outside of these four players won Wimbledon, said player Carlos Alcaraz won, wasn't even born yet. Um, it's kind of crazy to think about. Of course, we will dive into the uh, women's draw as well, which was... Uh, it's uh, quite a spectacle, some really uh, thrilling matches that we had, of course. But then, you know, the main storyline is this. And uh, so, Jack, why don't you uh, tell us what exactly uh, do you, how exactly do you feel? You know, it must be such a, must be a result that has probably shaken up the entire tennis world. Uh, not not to say that Carlos Alcaraz doesn't have the pedigree or is not capable of it, but then the magnitude of this victory for so many reasons is so large. What do you think of that? I think there are a few moments in the match where I could point to this guy being the real deal. Obviously, he is the real deal, but I I like to put it into context. I spoke about it with Vance, of course, on our own show. Three moments. I'll give you three moments, Surihi, from that final that are like, there's no reason, there's no way this was a fluke, right? The second set tiebreak, first one. Novak Djokovic is on a 13 tiebreak streak. He didn't make a single unforced error at the French Open in any of the tiebreaks he plays. That was six tiebreaks, by the way. And Carlos Alcaraz won that tiebreak. He won it on his own merits. You know, he served, he spot served well enough. That was a concern at the start of the grass season. Can this guy serve, hold up in the biggest moments? And he did immediately to start off the tiebreak. And then there was a couple of unforced errors off the... Novak backhand but you got to remember the guy on the other side of the net is obviously putting a little bit of pressure on that's not just like Novak you know there's not it's not totally inexplicable Alcaraz's level was there he'd shown great patience and rally temperament throughout the match Novak had to come up with something a little bit extra he misses two backhands and Alcaraz takes that tie break so with all that context obviously that's huge the third set when he won that massive game the 32 point game right Carlos Alcaraz made 29 of his 32 returns in that game. His returning the whole match was off the charts good. Now, we've had Tsitsipas, Medvedev, Zverev, that generation of returners. They can't touch this guy on return. I'm sorry. But Medvedev, he's a different kind of returner. He'll neutralize the ball. Alcaraz stands on the line and still doesn't let balls go past him. I mean, two aces. Two aces for the match. That is mind-blowing over five sets, over a four-and-a-half-hour match for Novak Djokovic. And on Unheard grass. Of. It's, it's... And on the, exactly, and on grass. And the, potentially the easiest surface to ace on. And yeah, didn't happen. Last moment, Suri, and then very keen to hear your thoughts. 
fifth set. That was the best fifth set I've ever seen anybody play against. Maybe maybe that's a little bit recency bias, but certainly in recent memory, in the last five years or so, best fifth set I've seen anybody play against Novak Djokovic. Alcaraz went deep into his bag of tricks, drop shots, second serves at 120 miles an hour, spot serves. I mean, lobs, that massive lob in the last game. He could do it all, but to see him do it all in the biggest moment of his life against Novak Djokovic, four-time defending champion at Wimbledon, huge. Massive. There you go. That's my small summary. It is, yeah. Um, you know, that's pretty well articulated. Um, it is, of course, so... Uh, I don't want to say... I mean, it is shocking in a way, but just to see, um, you know, someone as big as Djokovic on that court at this tournament, finally thwarted, what, more than 10 years since he last lost a match, going into this final on center court. Um, of course, Carlos Alcaraz and Andy Murray, a couple of things uh, that they do have in common. One is the only two players to beat Djokovic in a Grand Slam final that's gone five sets. One. Two, uh, both players won their first Grand Slam at the US Open, won their second Grand Slam at Wimbledon the, se- the following season. Three, of course... Uh, the only two players, I want to say, who beat uh, Novak Djokovic in a Wimbledon final and the last two players who've beaten him on center court. Uh, you know, f- uh, funnily enough, Andy Murray himself was there uh, watching the match and it was, um, yeah, probably, you know, moment of, uh, I would say, pride for him. Like, okay, this is someone after me after so long who's able to do the seemingly impossible. And of course, you know, th- there was the... Uh, one thing I think a lot of Murray fans like yourself were, you know, I definitely should be proud of is that this man, even though he's, um, you know, uh, been the recipient of so many defeats to Novak Djokovic, he's also managed to upstage him at some of the biggest matches, Wimbledon final being one of them, ATP finals, uh, final 2016, the biggest match I think they've played, I want to say, because that was the match that, uh, yeah. For number one. Basically, I know what you mean. Yeah, the ATP Finals in the year number one uh, trophy, both of them on the line. So, yeah, that being said, uh, it was you know an amazing performance from Alcaraz because he made us realize that Djokovic is human at the end of the day. Those are backhands you don't expect him to miss, right? Djokovic is the most clutch player in my opinion ever. Uh, you expect him when he gets those opportunities, not gonna let let slip of those. Alcaraz made an interesting point. He said that if he had lost that set, probably would have lost the match in straight sets. What do you think about that? In straight sets is interesting. I didn't hear that from Carlos. I doubt he would have lost in straight sets. I'm sure he's being modest there. Certainly think it's not a hot take that he would have lost the match. So he didn't. That's the thing. FFF yeah. doesn't exist, right? Uh, Ala, yeah, exactly. Alfa Nadal. So yeah. it, it doesn't like matter. Like you mentioned, missing those backhands has a lot to do with who he was facing. Rather than Djokovic, I mean, just out of nowhere, missing backhands. Like, it's not like he doesn't know how to play a backhand, doesn't know how to play these clutch moments well. Like, I mean, we know he's the best in both of those departments, right? So, yeah, he felt that. He felt Alcaraz looming large. And also, he was three love up in the uh, uh, tiebreaker. Of course, you could argue that he shouldn't have let slip of that lead because he you know threw in a drop shot that hit the bottom of the net but then I mean who's to say that Carlos wouldn't have gotten that mini break right back at any stage right this guy doesn't know when he's beaten ever um so that yeah for me that of course like you mentioned stood out um two aces yeah well I don't want to say that has a lot to do with the condition because Alcaraz I think he served one nine aces himself and 
he both players go. played in the same conditions. The conditions were for both players. Um, Al Djokovic is the better server than Akra. That is one of, you know, the uh, what, what fascinates me is that one of the reasons we pointed to for, you know, uh, Djokovic being the favorite in this matchup on the surface is that he can get those free points of serve. He can get a lot of Carlos serves back into play. But it was the flip side. Of, I mean, it was the reverse of what happened, what we expected to happen, basically. Alcaraz is getting almost every single return of Djokovic's back. Novak is sometimes, I mean, he just doesn't know what to do. The quite, a, I think, a couple of second surveys, especially towards the end of that fifth set. Um, so, yeah, talk about just not having nerves at all in the biggest match of your life so far. And then he puts up the performance. I thought, okay, you know, 5-4 is a good chance he gets broken back. He still, I mean, uh, I wouldn't say Novak gave anything away like after he got broken there. It just Alcaraz winning all of that on his own terms, really. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that, that's what I mean. He stepped up in the biggest moment of his life and he performed. It's a fantastic passing of the torch moment. I really thought it was worthy. There are, as you say, you know, maybe, or as you suggested, there are people who might say Novak's level was a bit under its normal level right but you got to think about the guy on the other side of the net yeah the conditions they're both playing in the same conditions remember regardless of how much more spin Alcaraz puts on his shots doesn't matter you know he's got a pretty big wind up high chance that he also feels his rhythms a bit off too Um, yeah and tennis is never played in a vacuum so I don't get why people always go to the well x player was not at their best and that is why their opponent won but that's not always the case I mean that's why matchups exist. Like some players just uh, manage to s- sort of subdue a lot of uh, strengths of the other player uh, in, in whatever uh, way possible, be it Djokovic's clutch men- uh, mental strength. Uh, even he had nerves, especially that drive volley at break point in the fifth set. Uh, yeah, you would never expect. I mean, and it just goes to show that he was feeling the nerves. So monumental win. Um, before we go too deep into you know this final alone, we got, we got quite we have quite a bit to talk about. Let's uh, you know just talk about the women's uh, side of uh, uh, you know the tournament uh, again. It, the main storyline being Von Russo, um, I think the first unseeded champion since uh, when it's been a long time. It's been a really long time since this, an unseeded player made the final, let alone win the tournament. She's certainly, she certainly the only unseeded champion at Wimbledon, anyway. Right, a yeah. Grand Slam? A Grand Slam, though? I'm not, not sure. Not a Grand Slam, of course, but Wimbledon, yeah. Um, and, yeah, a lot of people will be wondering, well, Serena Williams made the final in 2018. Even though she was ranked outside the top 150, she was seeded, I think, 23rd or 24th. So there's that. Um, but, yeah, Von Rusova, I mean... Uh, it. Again, quite a bit of a surprise. Going into the tournament, she had a win percentage of less than 50% on grass. So uh, let's just unpack that run because she did. I mean, she was almost beaten in the quarterfinal by Pegula, just one point away from 5-1 for Pegula, two breaks. And Mm -hmm. from there, and also against uh, Buskova, I think in the fourth round, she was down a set. Uh, Mm -hmm. But then by that time, she started to, you know, sort of boss the rallies and play a lot better. Um, so yeah, the, it would have been an incredible storyline if Ons Jabur won, of course, because she beat Elena Rybakina, got revenge for her uh, defeat last year in the final, beat uh-huh. Arena Sabalenka from a set and a breakdown, arguably the best player of the season. I mean, probably is, right? And mm-hmm. just 
you, you know, she was quite flat in that final and carrying so much expectation and pressure on her shoulders. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you have to say for that? Um, I'll start with the Von Drosova side, I guess. So for the French Open, when we were making those predictions at the start of the fortnight, I was quite big. And I think I put Von Drosova in the final. If it wasn't Sabalenka, I was like, Von Drosova's going to get to the final. Like She looks like the second best player in that half of the draw for me. Saying that, as you suggested, they are. She's not particularly good on grass prior to this tournament. I mean, she had like two wins to 10 losses or something like that. I think it was even worse than that. Maybe three or something. I don't know. It was bad anyway. I thought at the start of the tournament, our game's not particularly great for glass. It's more of a kind of grindy game. Very good lefty forehand to keep her opponents pinned into the backhand. What I didn't really account for is just how high a level she can play with that game. I still don't think she played a very grass-oriented game. I just think she is so quality at keeping it to her opponent's backhand. There's not loads of players in the top 100 with that sort of game style. That's the thing. And she did it perfectly. And if it does go to her backhand, it's a pretty good shot, actually. It's quite flat, you know. There's a bit of slice there as well every every now and then. Very good for the grass. Navratilova compared her to Cam Norrie, which is, you know, you see a lot of similarities yeah. in both of the games. I have a question to ask Nick. So, you know, we, we talk about flat hitters being rewarded on grass, but then you look at the champions, different story. Two players who hit such heavy ground strokes. So do you see a change? Is it just coincidence or do you see some sort of change um, in terms of, uh, you know, the play styles and how they sort of uh, uh, get rewarded on different surfaces that you wouldn't expect? Um, I think that um, the impact of spin and grass has always been underrated Um, and the ability to keep for it to, to, to use it to keep players pushed back I think grass is a surface that yeah it keeps the ball fairly low um comparatively which means that um even with spin the ball is going to dip a little bit more um I think it also rewards that that kind of court craft uh, there's this kind of craftier players who can uh, manipulate things a little bit more um so um, I mean, and, you know, there's there's been plenty of players who maybe are a bit um, a bit more on that kind of scale who have found a lot of success at Wimbledon. Um, I mean, we talk about on the men's side, Rafa Nadal um, and how much topspin he um, produces with his forehand, um, how um, uh, and, and he still won two Wimbledon titles. I don't think the fact he went on that that poor run sort of mid 2010s it was more reflective of where he was in his game at that moment in time rather than the um the uh, his game itself um if you look at Sviantek this Wimbledon um her forehand was still as brutal and effective as ever until maybe the last couple of rounds where that was more down to how she was managing the match and the situation than how well her game was translating so um no i don't think this is a massive uh, it's a, a massive surprise when thinking about it. Um, I do agree that like grass will always reward the flatter um, hitters. Um, I think Rabakina last year was not only rewarded for her surf, but also her her placement of of the forehand and the strokes that she can put in place. Um, 
So um, I, I expect that trend to continue. Um, but, you know, you look at Ons Jabeur and what she can do um, uh, with the ball, and she could do pretty much anything she wants. Um, uh, you know, I think that the craftier players will do, will always do pretty well on grass. Um, and Von Droschefer is is there. I, you know, at the end of the day, I think if you're good enough, you'll just make it work wherever you play. Yeah, yeah well, that's what? a pretty good account. Um, and the interesting point that you have about, uh, you know, spin, the effect of spin on grass being quite underrated or overlooked. Um, well, we, you know, opposite of how, opposite to how grandstand draws progress, we are sort of going backwards. We talk about the finals first and then the earlier rounds. Of course, there are a lot of uh, popcorn worthy matches uh in uh you know the earlier stay at the earlier stages of both of the men's and women's singles draws some uh standouts will start with Christopher Eubanks who put on a real spectacle against Sitsipas and Medvedev fell just short in the quarterfinal um a lot of people said he played uh true authentic grass court tennis as somebody who was started watching tennis in the late 2000s i I cannot really uh, sort of, I don't have any picture in mind as to what authentic grass court tennis is because obviously the homogenization um, of the surfaces is, I, I would say, still in play, but then it, it definitely has affected the way tennis has been played on all three surfaces. It's not such that, you know, I mean, you do have some players who do who perform particularly well on different surfaces, but then, you you have some players who perform well on all three, thanks to you know the homogenization or whatever. What, what do you think, Jack, about Chris Eubanks this tournament? I think that's a fair statement from a lot of people. He, he's playing front foot tennis. There's not a ton of players that play front foot tennis that make it deep in the Wimbledon draw nowadays. I think one thing I would add to everything Nick was saying there is that Wimbledon isn't mega fast anymore. It's not that fast. So you don't have to hit flat to defeat your opponent, basically. I mean, you could hit flat and your opponent might still get to the ball. Eubanks was absolutely smacking some of his one-handers cross-court and it was working. Sometimes you're just feeling it. But he had to hit massive to get it past Medvedev. And I mean huge. So maybe that doesn't that's not sustainable for the rest of the season. Most likely it's not. I think another good example is Mark andrea Husler. I don't know if you know him. But yeah. his hits are just like... I mean, he's going to slap it into the corner for a winner or it's going to go out. And there's not loads of that nowadays because it's just not consistent with, as you say, the homogenization of the surfaces. The underline to that, or the, the kind of implication there is that everything's kind of slowed down a bit to become to a sort of closer speed, basically. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it was great to see Chris Eubanks do that for two weeks, but I don't know if we'll see him keep doing it, if I'm brutally honest. <laughs> Interesting you because, think that this, yeah. this grass court run is going to be a one-off? We're not expecting to see in the second week of Wimbledon again. He might get to the second week of Wimbledon again, but I don't expect to see him, well, maybe the odd Masters quarterfinal or something, but I think top 30. Top 30 is about as far yeah. as it will. It's where he's knocking right now. Uh, US Open Series coming up. Uh, has he, well, Miami quarterfinal is as far as I can think of with regards to his exploits on hard courts. Um, Again, uh, home crowd, if you will, US Open Series coming up. Um, 
yeah, well, uh, you know, he's not going to be seeded at these Masters. He's hopefully going to be seeded at the U.S. Open, which will make things a lot interesting because it just has happened out of nowhere. He cracked the top 100 right after Miami, and now he's already number 31 in the world. Uh, yeah, I'm definitely keen on seeing what he's going to do uh, in these upcoming three big tournaments. Of course, I, I think he's playing Washington as well. Uh, one of the bigger tournaments leading up uh, to these three big ones. Um, I think he's just also got into Atlanta as well. Oh yeah, that's I think that that's the week before US Open, right? So, or just the tournament before, not week before. Uh, yeah, but yeah, that, that that makes things interesting for sure. Um, talking about Stefano Tsitsipas, I think a lot of us are surprised by the fact that he got past Andy Murray. Uh, sorry, Dominic Team and Andy Murray. Um, I think, well, we sort of had him getting past Dominic team, but then the way he played against Andy Murray was pretty surprising. And he mentioned that it was that match when he finally felt like himself again and that he was enjoying playing tennis and he was enjoying, he was playing free. He was not, he didn't feel sort of caged. Um, Nick, I think you, I, I think you covered that match for talking tennis or you did last ball drops. I did last ball. Uh, last I, I ball think it would be the last ball drops. Yeah. Cause we weren't doing uh live commentary until the second week. Oh, right. Um, yeah, I think I did the immediate sort of aftermath. I, I can't remember to be honest. I did a lot of those shows. Um, right, yeah. but, um, yeah, uh, that was a great, a great match. It was, it was, a. Well, it depends on your perspective. It was a very serve-dominated match, which is odd for an Andy Murray match, right? Yeah, um, two breaks of serve on match. Yeah, and for about four sets of tennis, um, Andy Murray was the, the was the better player and probably the one who should have who should have closed it out. Um, and uh, you know, his his City Pass wasn't reading his serve, but City Pass was serving really well, and his forehand was being super effective. And um, I think, yeah, I think, I think, you know, he said he believed in himself again. Yeah, he did look like he had a lot of self-belief and his game was working, which we weren't expecting on grass because we know that it, rush, it, it rushes his backhand particularly. But Pass was able to run around, get the forehand into play. And um, Murray wasn't doing enough to pressurise that backhand. Like he was hitting to it constantly, trying to wait for an error, but it wasn't drawing errors. Um, and I think that was the key. But um, I think the team win was also really impressive because team was playing pretty well. Um, and the fact that City Pass kind of got through that was impressive for him. And I think in many ways he was just unfortunate to run to Chris Eubanks, who was just on fire. Uh, so um, I think City Pass will be taking a lot of positives from from this Wimbledon run second time in the, in the uh, second week. Um, yeah, a better grass court season than expected from um, the Greek, who is now currently battling to sort of maintain his place in the top four. Yeah, uh, well, he is in the top five. I think Rude is number four. Um, should he oh. defend his title in uh, Gestad, I think? Yeah, he'll be back in the top four because he's otherwise he'll drop out of the top five. Um, but yeah, about Tsitsipas, uh, Jack, don't you find it bizarre that this guy's made finals in Canada and Cincinnati and just not made it past the third round of the US Open. What is it about that? <laughs> Good question. Good question. I don't know. Uh, happenstance or maybe it's more surprising that he's 
he's made it in the aforementioned tournaments. Um, honestly, yeah, good question. He should be getting further than that at the US Open. Obviously, running into Alcaraz in the third round isn't the best of luck. Um, a couple of years ago, can you remind me who he lost to last year? That was probably, oh, I know who it was, I it think. It was Galan, Daniel Galan. Yeah, Galan. I remember. That was bizarre. Cause it was he was, I mean, 6-1 six, six, in the opening. He didn't win a game for, what, no, almost two sets. Yeah, it was mad. I'm afraid I don't have any words of wisdom in this one. I don't know why Sitsipas doesn't like the US Open. But there's no reason, there isn't really any reason he can't do well this year. So I think everybody who's got him out in the first and second round, it's only a matter of time before he starts to get out of the tournament. We, we look at, we, we take historical context uh, rather than his actual pedigree on hard yeah. courts because that's like the only big tournament on the surface where I think he's not made it to the at least the quarterfinals in, in yeah. the entire calendar which is again crazy because I mean let's also mention the 2020 match against Borna Church in the third round 5-1 up in the fourth set he loses with what 6-7 match points six, yeah, six. Um, again I mean you see some some uh, common something very common in all of these losses and in this, if you look at the trajectory of his career and they look no further than his father. So um, he, it, there's just something about that relationship that's just not working for him. So many coaches came in, went out. Now it's just his dad who's managing him. Um, I don't know if that's helping him. Um, so we had Thomas Enquist at one point. He had Mark Filipposis, of course, Murato Glue. Um, none of them with him anymore. So I just, I, I think that may be the lingering issue for him. Uh, it's not working like the helicoptering uh, with you know that happens with his parents and you can see things getting heated as well was it last year against Rubler where he just uh, you know hit a ball again towards his box where his parents when his parents got a bit too chatty so those are not things you like to see really someone as talented as him uh, sure there are a lot of matchups where he has issues I mean in the top 10 uh, but then still you know he is better than a lot of players I want to say 90 to 90, 90 players in the top 100 is better than that for sure. Like, capability-wise, I want to say. So, it's bizarre, um, but we'll have to see. Of course, going back to women's draw, uh, going going to US Open this year feels a lot different compared to last year. We have two players. I mean, Sabalenka made the semis, but then she had a pretty bad season until that point last year, if I had to say. Uh, I don't, I don't remember any result aside from that Stuttgart final where she really and she had those double fault issues, major double uh, fault issues. Double TA finals right at the end of the season. Got right, the that final. was after the US Open, but at least oh, yeah, after until season, the yeah. US Open. Yeah, um, you know, I don't remember any noteworthy results. But this year, I mean, she's the form of her life. Uh, winner at Australia and Madrid final in Indian Wells, semi-finals in the other two slams. So. She must be feeling a lot more confident going. But then the big issue remains, uh, you know, what happens to her in Grand Slam semifinals? I mean, she ends up running into very, very good opponents. I mean, we, we talk about the 1-5 Grand Slam semifinal record. All the Grand Slam semifinals she's lost went to three sets. Um, and... Um, and apart from maybe the Fernandez one, and even then, I'm going to say Fernandez was playing phenomenal tennis at that point. Um, like the Pliskova loss at Wimbledon in tw- in 21, 
Um, Plushkiver was just came out and played an amazing match, and we know how good Plushkiver can be. Um, can be. Um, we saw how she did in the. Um, you know, she was a setup on the Gushviantek um, in the U.S. Open. That required an incredible fight back from the pole. Um, she was um, match, you know, match point up against Karina Mukova. Karina Mukova pulled off an incredible comeback. Um, and then she ended up against Omshaber, who again pulled off a comeback. And I don't think it's a problem with Sabalenka closing any of these out. I think it was a problem with her opponent decided to have a very, very good day. Um, yeah, I guarantee to you, if she played Svitolina in the other semi-final, she would have won it. Um, so, she did beat her at RG, so yeah, possible. Yeah. So she, I think, I, I don't think this, the problem is Sofia. I just think that... Um, Sabalenka, despite being one of the form players of the year, and she is very, very strong at the minute, um, can still be challenged by most of the players on a very, very good day, as can Iga Sviantek, as can Elena Rabakina. So um, I don't think it's that much of a disaster for Sabalenka. She is going to the US Open as one of the the three big favourites, I would say. That's true. Um, But... You know, it's just that you would, I mean, someone of her pedigree and for her stature in terms of rankings, you would expect her to close out matches from certain situations. Of course, taking nothing nothing away from her opponents in those matches, uh, you, you you do wonder. But then again, you know, she she broke new ground this season. So I I I wouldn't worry too much about that. Um, and she, she's taking these losses a lot better than she used to take losses. Um Mm-hmm. Even though some of them are really tough ones, set no break up in the Wimbledon semis. I mean, favorite from there, really. I I, I didn't imagine her losing to Von Drusova. Um, Of course, at RG as well. I mean, she could have given Shriantek a real tough time in the final. Sure, I, I, I would put Shriantek as a favorite if, you know, for that uh, hypothetical match, but still. Um, but yeah, she's over, uh, she's gotten over them pretty well, which is good. And I think she's obviously going to brush them off leading into the U.S. Open series. Um, so, yeah, of course, Sabalenka and Rybakina as well. I I don't think it's too much of a concern losing to Anshabur at all, really. Um, a really good player to lose to. And other than that, anyway, she's had a fantastic season. So not much to worry about. Uh, again, very historical alone, just that she's not made it past the, again, second or third round, the U.S. Open. But that has nothing to do with how good she is on hard courts, really. Uh, it's just yeah. a matter of time. Similar to uh, Australia, right? Going into there, and she got yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Um, and um, I think RG as well. She's made it to the quarters once, and this year yeah. we know what happened. She had to withdraw because of illness. So that again, it's very exciting. And then on Jabber, where do we see her going in the US Open? Made the final last year. Um, but yeah, I mean, she she made good progress through that draw last year. Um, I I think um, it did help. And then she had a great matchup with Caroline Garcia in the semis. Um, like she just loves that matchup for some reason. Um, I see no reason why she couldn't be a contender, but an unlucky draw could really scupper her. Jack, what do you think? Um. If I was being honest, I think Wimbledon's probably her only chance at a slam in the future. I honestly really like her game on grass or natural surfaces. I like it on clay as well. I think the drop shot works super well there. The slices are 
not just slices, but the sort of improvisational shots are genuinely disruptive. That's why Rebecca and I lost that match. That's why Sabalenka lost that match. But honestly, on hard courts, a lot of our shots tend to have to be proper ground strokes to have any impact. Slices set up, right? And her ground strokes aren't the greatest in the world. They're very flat. They can be quite shaky under pressure. I would say the US Open was an amazing run last year, but there were so many rocky moments. It is unreal how she got through all of them. Absolute credit to her, but the chances of her doing that again for seven matches in a row and win them all, I just think it's unlikely. That's all. Um, and it's no slight. Jabir is an amazing person, obviously, player. But that's my thoughts. And uh, that's also kind of starts to explain why she's accrued a lot of hardcore losses over the last 52 weeks. She is literally about 55, 45 in terms of win rate on the um, surface. Interesting. Yeah, well, I can't really dispute that. I mean, you bring up the numbers and giving context as well as to, you know, how her run was last year and, you know, Shviontek, she's only beaten her once in that Wimbledon fourth round. Otherwise, again, that's another matchup Shviontek enjoys against her, fair to say. Uh, not as much as he enjoys a matchup against Coco Goff, but anyway. Um, speaking of Coco Goff, again, uh, she was handed a brutal first round against Sofia Kennan. Sort of on the rise again. She beat Sabalenka in Rome, if I'm not mistaken, this year. Uh, and obviously, this win was big. So I'm not sure where she is exactly in terms of rankings. I know she qualified for Wimbledon. Uh, I I don't think she's done too well historically at the US Open either. I remember her making the fourth round 2020. Uh, but yeah, w- what do you think of her chance? Where where do you see her career going next? Kennan. Goff, right? Kennan, Kennan, right. Oh, Kennan, sorry. Right. Go ahead, Nick. No, I was going to say, I was, I was clarifying, but uh, yeah, um, Kenin is is hard to predict because, yeah, she's beaten Sabalenka and Goff and there's a good, good wins, but she's also um, not necessarily uh, delivering sort of the rest of the time. I think Wimbledon was probably her most positive tournament of the year and you know, she backed up the win against Goff and in many ways probably just ran out of steam against Svitolina, who was having an amazing tournament. Um so I think Ken has got her mojo back to a certain extent, but it's still going to be a long climb back up. She does have automatic entry into the US Open now um, with that run. Um, so that's going to make her life a little easier. She doesn't have to qualify. So maybe she'll have a little bit more energy. Um, but yeah, I think Kenan's just just hard to predict. But if she is back and playing well, it's a positive for the tour. Right. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. If- and the Kenan, I want to say Kenan equivalent in a way, Dominic team. Um Again, he's had, well, pretty tough lo- back-to-back five-set losses the first round of slams. He lost to Medvedovic today in Bastard, I think. That's where he played. Um, yeah, again, well, not a... I, I, I just don't know if that's a bad loss or a good loss. But then, again, his season started out pretty disastrously. Then he got some wins to get going. Uh, on the clay, I think he started from Estoril, where he started to get some wins and obviously pushed Sitsipas to decide and set tiebreak twice. They played Madrid and Wimbledon. But at what point? I just think that it is when he gets a win like that, would it be safe to say that that would open the floodgates? Because even in his prime, Dominic team was never a consistent player. Someone like, say, Medvedev, for example, in his prime, he was making it deep into a lot of the tournaments. I would say the same uh, to some effect with Tsitsipas as well. 
last year he made it deep in a lot of uh, masters events and obviously uh, the semifinal at the Australian Open so team is never he has done well at the slams but he's not like backed it up i don't know what is to come for him at uh, you know the US Open series yeah, again it depends on whether or not he gets a good draw but what what does a good draw really mean for him these days when it's fair to say he's getting handed a lot of defeats <laughs> yeah I, i mean team team's got a, i think it's all mental at this point I, it's not a crazily hot take but i mean he's had a lot of close matches this year i think the best one i can think of is the manorino one where he lost in the third set tie break and the forehand got tight and you can see it's that shot in particular that's getting tight once he can sort that out no reason he can't get back to the top 10 he's got a huge game i honestly believe in him but it's going to take a few big wins shrihri so i think it is a bit of momentum that he needs all right then um so we spoke about dominic team of course um we didn't speak about the two other men's semifinalists yanik sinner and danil medvedev uh very interesting spot there in as far as this season goes because two of the best players for sure uh, they're in the top 4 in the atp race uh yanik has not won a big title surprisingly having made it deep in a lot of these tournaments medvedev has a couple of big titles to his name semifinal at wimbledon uh another uh, you know four i think three other titles two of them 500s and of course the final at indian wells you know it interesting fact about medvedev is that the you know he's going to his favorite part of the season at the same time we know that he doesn't win a tournament more than once and he's won every big title from here on until november um uh, again is that just something that you know happened by chance do you see him winning another big title of course a uh, lot of questions now with Carlos Alcaraz and how, what a bad matchup that is for Medvedev that has been shown to us pretty much uh, on you know a surface as low as Indian Wells and on a court as fast as Wimbledon center court so what do you think of that unexpectedly bad matchup as well um given that you know the way Medvedev plays he might be able to give himself time to deal with with Carlos but i think maybe being so far behind the baseline makes him so more vulnerable to the drop shot that Carlos likes to deploy um and i would also say that Carlos is one of the few players who could pretty much hit through anyone we saw that with Djokovic as well um uh, i think Medvedev is is still likely to win a big title is obviously most comfortable on hard courts it's not a fluke that he's consistently done well at this point in the second half of the season um for three years four years um and i i expect to continue i still put him as one of the three favorites for the us open um we know how much he loves it in new york particularly i i think that yeah i think we'll probably see him at least win another big title because there will be some stuff that carlos doesn't show up for like there occasionally carlos doesn't show up um not necessarily literally i mean like i mean how else to explain that loss to moroshan in in rome yeah. um or the losses he sustained in canada and cincinnati last year um and novak we don't know what his plans are for hard court preparation yet he um, does plan on playing canada and cincinnati but he's he's tended to not put as much effort into anything yeah that's slack. true so it's, again it's interesting because he's, he's not played these tournaments in so long um because there was no canada in 2020 uh he didn't play in 2019 either played cincinnati lost to medvedev in the semis uh 
there's another possibility. Yannick Sinner matches up so well against Alcaraz. So yeah. what if he does, you know, in uh, to put it this way, does the dirty work for Medvedev? And we yeah. know how well Medvedev matches up against Sinner. is 6-0 and he, he plays exactly how Medvedev um, wants an opponent to play. It's safe to say, really. Yeah, because um, Sinner struggles against metronomic hitters, I think. He he is his game is so well rounded. Um and he can he can definitely deal with them the, someone mixed up the pace like Carlos does. But against someone who's super consistent, like a Djokovic or a Medvedev, he struggles. Um so yeah, maybe that that you're right, that could happen. Equally Carl Yannick could turn it around. I mean, I think I like the trajectory he's been on this year. Um, good results in the Sunshine Double in Australia, pushing City Pass and the semi-finals at Wimbledon. Um, I actually have a hot take. I think Yannick's, if Djokovic wasn't in the Wimbledon 2022 draw, Yannick Sinner would have won it. Um, I and and so you know he's he's been he's been unfortunate with some draws that's prevented him from doing it. I know that he's been in two other big finals in Miami. Um, but I, I think, you know, apart from Sinner stopping it, I think he's a contender to win one of the either Canada or Cincinnati. Um, and I think he's a US, he's a dark horse US Open contender. Um, so I think it's a good, I, I think the straight sets loss to Djokovic was tough, but we know it matches up bad. But I think he pushed Djokovic closer than he's ever done before, apart from that five setter um, last year at Wimbledon. Um, uh, and I guess we were feeling a little bit better about Sinner this year than last year. So I I, I think Sinner's I think Sinner's still a force. Whether he turns around the Medvedev matchup, I'm not sure. But um he's he's in there and I think he's gonna take a lot of positives. Yeah, and don't we want another showdown between him and Alcaraz at the US Open? Um such a defining match that was because you just wonder what if Alcaraz doesn't win that match? Mm. Sinner gets that much of an upper hand over him in the head to head. Not just numbers wise. I mean, he matches up well. That is to say, he has a three-three record against Alcaraz. Mm. Um, I think no player on tour at the moment has has a positive head-to-head against Alcaraz, having played multiple matches. Um, so there's that. But yeah, well, Yannick probably wins that tournament. Um, maybe Tiafo probably stops him. It's very possible because Tiafo did beat him in Vienna. I if you remember that match a couple of years ago. Where Yannick was sort of. Upset, I don't want to use the word salty, kind of was, with that Tiafo sort of egging the crowd on. Um, I think it was, what, almost 6-3-5-1 up in that match, and Tiafo wins it from there. And, uh, yeah, he, it just all happened so fast, and we know Tiafo can do that, some of these matches. If Talking about dark horses, I would put Tiafo as one of the dark horses for the yeah. US. Um, Yannick, I, I, I do want to say he's one of the favorites, though. Like, outside... Alcaraz, Djokovic, Medvedev, maybe he's fourth. You know, just con- putting into context this season and his m- matchups against the best players, maybe Holger Rune is ahead of him, but definitely top five in terms of contenders. I think Sin is further on in his development and has better physicality than Rune. At this um, moment, yes. At this moment, yeah. In a couple of years, Rune could overtake him. Um, maybe Rune has a higher ceiling, but I think. Right now, at this moment, I would be backing Sinner over Runa, um, especially if they played each other in a final. Yeah. Um, so, or deep in the tournament, I don't think the seedings would allow for that. But 
Um, well, how about he's 20. He's, he's Alcaraz's age. I think he's a week apart. And he's made it to three slam quarterfinals. Fourth round at the Australian Open. Point, a point away from making the quarters there as well. So yeah. really, it's only the US Open where he's not made the second week so far. Um, and that's super early his career still. Yeah, it is. And if you just look at his career in exclusion, come like forget Alcaraz, forget Nadal, these you know prodigies for their age, like you know slam winner, multiple slam winners by twenty. He's had an amazing career for a youngster. Two Masters finals, one title at that level, uh, three Grand Slam quarterfinals, and you know his rec- record against the top five is amazing. I think he has only had what two losses or three losses, I think, against top five. Probably Djokovic, Medvedev, and Rude, I think. Um, of course, four, including Alcaraz, of course. Um, I completely forgot about that. But yeah, I mean, you know, I uh, he has been consistent. One of only three players in the men's uh, tour this year to have made the second week at all stamps so far. Um, maybe he lifts one of these Masters events or Masters titles. Canada or Cincinnati, even US Open, you know, you, you just never know. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, there are a lot of other players in the mix. At the moment, Djokovic and Sinner are the two players we expect to give Carlos a run for his money or push him to the limit. Uh, haven't seen that yet with Medvedev. I thought he would do something different. Uh, he, in his mind, uh, the Indian Wells match was a one-off, but I don't think he's going to look at that anymore. Of course, he did change the return position in that match itself. But if you're not really training for that in during your practice hours, what what really are you gonna? Uh, what really is the output gonna be if you try and do that during the match when you know the opponent can easily jam you up? You're not you're not trained for it. Uh, I I hope he puts in the hours to figure that out because uh, it would really be unfortunate if he thinks of okay, well, Alcaraz is the only bad matchup for him in the top ten. Uh, so he doesn't really work on that because Alcaraz could be in the way of Medvedev lifting a lot, many more big titles, really. Um, so that I think is, you know, it's interesting to see what he does um, with that return position, um, keeping Alcaraz in mind, of course. Players who have been bust this season, one of them definitely, Felix Oje Aliasim. Uh, are we going to see him again this year, or does he just make a comeback next year? I think he's going to have a go. I, he quite likes the US Open. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised to see him make a bit of a dent there. Um, maybe he'll he'll get a bit of a boost from playing Labour Cup later in the year. Um, but I don't... I think at this point, it's just not... You can't set any expectations on Felix. Um, uh, and, you know, I did wonder after a couple of years of him struggling to get titles whether he does have a ceiling and I think maybe we're seeing him hit that but he's definitely struggling to be consistent um I don't know why it seems to be some kind of Canadian thing um but uh, yeah sorry Canada like produce a tennis player who performs week in week out and we'll talk um but I um yeah I, I I I know what Felix, we know what Felix can produce, um, and he's going to be a tough draw for in, on paper for years to come. Um, but you can't necessarily back him to do it every time. 
That's true. Um, but then obviously indoor hardcourt season. Would that be too late? Because let me just figure out where exactly he is in the race. I'm pretty sure he's well in the bottom. Um, well, I don't yeah, think he's he number like 39 in the race. <laughs> that is 39. Yeah. Um, not well recoverable. Yeah. He will yeah, it, run it's, soon. It's good enough for him to get a, a second half of the season in where he could still be seeded in time for Australia. Uh, but he's going to need an, an epic end of the season to get back to Turin. Exactly. And that's what I was thinking about because the field was great in Turin last year. Matches delivered as well. Um, especially, what was it, Green Group? The one with Medvedev, Sitsipas, Djokovic and Rublev. That mm. really delivered. Um, so, you know, and obviously Felix was winning. He was definitely a bust in that tournament, considering his pedigree, how well he was doing on in the indoor hard course. He won four titles that season, three in that part of the season, made the semis in Bercy. Um, so for him to lose to Rude and Fritz um, was kind of disappointing. We, a lot of us had him making the semifinal. Um, so yeah, he will need definitely two or three big runs to see himself, I mean, I mean at big tournaments, to see himself contending for that spot again. Another player, Dark Horse, as far as Dark Horse is concerned, Sebastian Corda, maybe, for US Open. But there's just so many question marks with him. Uh, and sometimes he doesn't show up on, you know, or he just, you know, fizzles out early. Um, injury as well has been a concern for him in his young career. But um, well, has he, pro- I don't think he's made it too far at the US Open so far, but Bell, I mean, what better time than this season, considering his exploits in Australia? Yeah, I mean, look, and and Queens Club as well. Like he's, oh, yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him put in a performance in Washington or somewhere like that. Um, he seems to like fight his five hundreds or or that level. No, Adelaide's not too. Adelaide was two fifty. Ignore me. Um, but. Yeah, Corder is someone with a lot of potential, and I still rate very highly. Um, but you're right; isn't isn't necessarily delivering uh, week in, week out. Um, and um, yeah, I, I think I will be fair. Vesely is a tricky opponent when he's playing well, um, which is who beat him at Wimbledon. Uh, but yeah, I think Corder did run us a bit in Queens. I think he needs to not over overdo it too much before. Um, a major um, we'll have to see how it goes but like yeah he's going to get a lot of crowd support and I, I, I think he'll do alright in the USA but it's just difficult to I think he's, it's going to be very draw dependent for him yeah I tend to agree um, the biggest name and the probably the biggest anticipation at the US Open uh, I, I think it's fair to say it's objectively speaking Novak Djokovic really um, he's not played last year we know what happened in 2020. We know what happened in 2021. Um, he's won this tournament only three times, shockingly, considering, you know, how pro- arguably the greatest player on the surface. And yet he's won it three times, lost six finals. Um, doesn't have the calendar slam pressure on him going into the US Open, but there's a different kind of elephant on his back. And in, that's in the form of Carlos Alcaraz. Because he is the player who has really, I mean, when, when push, push came to shove in that match, he was the more clutch player. He showed that Djokovic can be outclutched 
no one really has shown that in a very long time, aside from Rafael Nadal, had grand slams, solely speaking. Maybe Dominic team that one time you beat him uh, in that five-setter in RG four years ago. No, not many have shown that. I, I wouldn't even say Medvedev did because, well, um, circumstances definitely helped him. Would he have won? Possibly. But he played really well, no doubt, in that final against Djokovic. Of course, he, whenever Djokovic had a lot of chances to make inroads in the second set, Medvedev slammed the door shut, serving amazingly well that day. But then I still have my reservations as to who I would pick if Djokovic and Medvedev went to a five-setter. So what do you think of uh, Alcaraz and Djokovic, that uh, prospect at the US? Well, firstly, as a Federer fan, ouch. <laughs> well, Deserve, yeah. But also, ouch. Um, the... The, yeah, in terms of, and another thing I want to throw out there is Djokovic has only won the US Open three times and he's only ever won it when he's won Wimbledon before that, 2011, 2015, 2018. Yeah, I mean, what was the ouch for exactly? Was it the 2019 Wimbledon final or the fact that he, I didn't refer to Federer as the greatest. The fact that Federer has never outclutched Djokovic in a five-setter. Right. But he could have done in that Wimbledon (laughs) final. Right, I mean, they played, what, four or five setters and three of them, you know, what happened. So, um, yeah, yeah um, pretty it, much, pretty much. But regardless, I mean, uh, yeah, but you, speaking of that, we just never know um, what would have happened if he won at least one of them, right? I mean, could have changed the landscape quite a bit, which is interesting to see because we could get a picture now seeing what Djokovic is going to do at slams after this, of as to what may have happened if Federer won that final over Djokovic in 2019. Yeah. Good. But Could at be. the same time, yeah. uh, I think recency bias sort of consumes us in a way because Djokovic has converted or he's, he's put aside these heartbreaking losses at Slam and gone on a tear a lot of times. I, I, would, I would agree with that. I would also say that... Um, Regardless of that 2019 result at Wimbledon, Djokovic wasn't going to win the 2019 US Open anyway because he was injured. Yeah. So that injury would have happened regardless. And um, I think that still would have given him the time to regroup, come back, and history still play out much the same way. Yeah, um, I think agree, mostly. Uh, yeah, it would have been a... But I, I, you are right in terms of, like, you know, I, I, yeah, how, does, how does Djokovic deal with the situation? I guess... The difference is, is that Alcaraz, he's not, it's not that he's not used to having a rival because he had that in Rafa and Roger. Uh, Rafa, particularly in slams, pushing him. Um, this difference this time, Alcaraz is younger. Yeah, 16 years younger. He's, this is like um, the, the, every kind of sports movie of the young pretender versus the old dog. Um, well, you know, I mentioned Cars 3 while we were at it. Uh, I was going to say Cars 3, but I didn't know if that would be too cheesy. Well, um, nah, nah. I mean, that, it's nice to see that there's a fellow Cars fan. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> who is that? Jackson Storm against Lightning McQueen, sort of. Um, when you say those names out loud, you realize like how crazy those films are. But exactly. um, Pixar, where's our tennis movie? Anyway. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, something to think about. Giant tennis rackets. I'm sure that'd be hilarious to watch. Um, Tiny Tony tennis rackets. Uh, or cars we, playing tennis. What about that? There's a lot. Cars do a lot of things in those movies. Um, I mean, yeah. Well, 
Anyway, how are we on this tangent? Novak Djokovic. Um, so Djokovic uh, is going to be one of the favourites for the US Open. He has underperformed there. Um, do I give Alcaraz the edge on paper right now? Yes. Do I rule out Novak Djokovic? No, because only a fool rules out Novak Djokovic. Um, uh, yeah, that's pretty any- pragmatic the way you put it. Really. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I can't disagree. Um, the, this win was no fluke. Alcaraz showed that. And anyone, I, that's the one thing I'm relieved about. While there are people, in a way, making excuses for Novak conditions, he didn't serve well, whatnot. I think I'm, I don't know if you were there when I mentioned this to Jack, but tennis is never played in a vacuum, is it? Because yeah. matchups also determine how, uh, at what level you are and how much of your best you're able to bring out. I have a question for you. And I think it's going to determine how we think about Novak Djokovic going into the US Open. Interesting. Go ahead. Is that I can you think of any other player on a hard court over five sets that can give Djokovic some trouble or be a be a challenging matchup for Djokovic other than Alcaraz and Medvedev? Because I'm not sure I can. Olga Runa, I want to say. Okay. Yeah, I would say Holger Rune may. I think Djokovic would outlast Rune if it went five. That sure. Um, since we mentioned who would trouble him, I I think Holger can more than trouble him for sure. Um, but yeah, I'd say I, trouble in terms of like I think I'm underselling it a little bit. Like actually yeah. beat. Um, I think Rune would have to be playing the match of his life and do it in three or four to stop Djokovic, and they'd have to be fairly efficient sets. That's true. Um, he can't do that for sure. He showed that in Rome. He showed that in Paris. Well, we don't see Djokovic to his fullest potential at these tournaments compared to slams. But at the same time, he's shown enough where I can, you know, very much fear the prospect of Djokovic playing Rune. Especially if it's in a quarterfinal. Uh, the draw could very much play out that way because, you know, the likes of Alcaraz or Medvedev would be awaiting if the draw plays out in the most ideal way possible, no upsets, uh, you know, suffered by any of the, a lot of the top eight seeds. We had six of the top eight seeds uh, in Wimbledon in the quarterfinal. That, that was pretty excellent. If that's anything to go by, then having someone like Rune in the quarterfinal, we could see something similar to 2021 where Djokovic had to come through a ridiculously difficult draw. Um, I think what was in Nishikori in the uh, third round, or a second, third round, Brooksby, who, I mean, really uh, troubled Novak. I want to say trouble because, yeah, it didn't look that way towards the end, the, uh, the, the way the scoreline played out. But Djokovic was, he found himself in a pretty big battle in the first two sets, especially that 20-minute game. We, we talked about the 26-minute game in the final against Alcaraz, but he lost a game that was nearly as long in that match as well. So, you know, that you never know, right? Someone like Runa, uh, even if he does push Djokovic to five sets and loses, like Djokovic is thinking about how does it affect me progressing into the tournament, the semis and finals. Um, you know, the biggest matches of the tournament coming up, um, does he remain uh, in optimal shape? So you definitely uh, can see Holger sort of uh, in adding some, uh, what do you call it, perturb- perturbance there so yeah yeah 
Yeah, I, I could see him bothering Djokovic, definitely. Um, and maybe get a set or two off. And we know he can get two sets off Djokovic. Um, and maybe maybe Djokovic is becoming more vulnerable with age. And we are starting to see these slips more and more often, as, as, as happens with every athlete at any sport, um, when they pass a certain point. But he's still playing at a strong enough level that only the really top players can take advantage. Um, I mean, Hubert Hercatch at Wimbledon this year could have done something um, if he'd played better tie breaks. Yeah, like he could have caused true. a mega I mean, he had the both of the tie breaks on his racket. It, in a way, reminded me of that Kevin Anderson match from eight years ago at the same stage. Anderson was sort of managed to hold his nerve and keep it together for two tie breaks. Hercatch couldn't, which is unfortunate. Great grass court player. Um, I don't see him doing that in hard courts, though. Um, oh, no, no. Her catch can I do that on grass? Yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, that being said, I think we have covered a lot of what happened at Wimbledon and tried to, as I mean, obviously, you know, we can never predict in tennis or in any in sport in general. We, I don't want to go down that route because I know what happens on Twitter. I tweet something about what I think would happen in a tournament and the next day I see co-tweets on that same, or even hours later with like Sinner at RG. And then I talk about how great his chances are. And then like an hour later, he loses to Altmaier from match point up and the tweet is filled with 80 quotes or whatever. So. um, Oh, I've been there. I've been there. But like, Um, that's why I don't, don't try and do stuff like that. But um, I think we we don't like you're right. It's not predictions. It's 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 sort of forecasting. Exactly. Um, but we are forecasting based on the data we have available. Yeah. We will have a better forecast once um, Canada and Cincinnati are done, and you and I will be looking at ahead to the U.S. Open. Right. Yeah. I can't wait for that already because uh, you know, uh, as you mentioned to me, you will be away for what a month or so, and yeah. definitely. Yeah, we'll we'll miss having these discussions on our podcast, but then you know you'll be back by the end of Cincinnati. We can talk about the U.S. Open. It would be a lot more plausible to discuss uh, what could happen there closer to the tournament as it is now. But nonetheless, really exciting to uh, speak, especially with you about the current state of both men's and women's tennis, which is looking really exciting. Uh, we sort of seeing we are sort of seeing the change of the baton. Maybe earlier in WTA with Ash Party retiring out of nowhere last year, but then ATP, it's really looking spicy now. With We have three or four players, like three gatekeepers at big tournaments. Only one big tournament has been won outside of these three. And I think only two at, uh, outside of Rybakina, Shriantek, and Sabalenka on WTA tour. Maybe two or three, I'm not sure. Maybe probably two. So, yeah, as yeah. always, pleasure uh, chatting with you, Nick. And uh, I'll, you know, see you soon enough um in a month yep well speak to you speak to you on the podcast the month we'll probably speak at some point in between right Um, definitely for sure yeah and uh but yeah it's been absolute blast and uh look forward to uh the next look forward to next time likewise see you soon see you